What's up, YouTube? <laughs> hey, everybody. This is John Michael Ryan and Matt Richmond, or as Matt would put it, I'm Matt Richmond, and this is John Michael Ryan. And that works for us because we're a partnership. And this is Hey Retriever. Uh, you've no doubt already listened to a very confusing, what we now call episode zero, which was our attempt to intro this episode. Or introduce the podcast as a whole, as an idea, as a concept. As a theory. Deep. Uh, so episode one, through episode seven, uh, we're going to dive through who the people are that are part of Retriever. And it has been my great honor to, first and foremost, select Matt Richmond to be the first episode. Matt, people want to know about you. They have a lot of questions for you. Uh, but to get there, just a small, a small uh, segue, how did you and I meet? Well, first, I would maybe contend that people wanting to get to know me is maybe not true. Second, how did we meet? Uh, you and I met when I was a young copywriter at Symantle in Peoria. We came to St. Louis, my creative partner and I, uh, to work on a photo shoot for Ameren, I believe. Was that an Ameren job? It was. And um, we worked with uh, Mark Katzman. Mm -hmm. And in the course of that job, he introduced us to you uh, in a really funny way. Could, you, you, I think, were, and, and I don't, you know, your backstory is its own episode, so I don't want to give away too much. But you sort of uh, were just getting started as a, as a professional creative, and you, you were sort of a throw-in the way he presented it to us. Like, hey, I got this kid. He's really talented. I won't charge anything. Let's let him come along, get some behind-the-scenes stuff. Blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, sure. It doesn't cost us anything. Let's do it. And the results of that were actually, you know, blew us away, me and Jake. Um, and I think from that point on, uh, for quite a while, you were our first call um, rather than a throw-in. You were, you were somebody we sought out to work with. And this is uh, uh, 2000 and. Five, two thousand and six. Does that sound right? No, a little after that, probably like twenty ten, kind of range. Uh, but you got the first question right, and so so we'll do a sound effect here. Great, great. And that's the first question. You you correctly identified that. Uh, the second question I have for you, Matt. No way is, that was two thousand ten. By the way, that, it had to be oh eight. It it could have been two thousand nine. Okay, I'll split the difference. The answer I was looking for was just Samantha, comma, Amarin. Oh, we're doing, okay, okay. I'm sorry, you don't want stories. You want one <laughs> word answers. Got it. I more or less decided halfway through your answer to turn this into a quiz. Uh, so question number two, after Samantha, uh, where you and I met, we then met at which Michigan-based place? Are we looking for a city here or a company? Yeah, I, really, I left that kind of open there. I'll take both. Okay. Um, we didn't uh, just run into each other. Uh, I went on to work for a company called Haggerty 
which sells insurance for classic cars, but um, isn't exactly what they do. They they sort of build a whole world around classic car ownership. And uh, I was part of the internal creative team there. Um, I was able to sell them on the idea for a, a series of spots. Um, I called you, John. Uh, you came to Traverse City, Michigan, and we did, uh, do you remember how many days we shot? Three, four days? Sound effect goes here. Great. Uh, yeah, it was a five-day shoot. Okay. Uh, so I got it right. You got question two right. Third question for the intro to Matt Richmond, uh, which product have you performed a sing-along for? Oh, um, that would be Dirty Jobs Complete. That is correct. Is that a story, or do we do we insert uh, audio here? Sound effect goes here, and that indicates that Matt Richmond has completed three out of five answers successfully. Uh, which brings us to, in which city were you living when I slept on your couch in your guest bedroom for a couple months? Well, this is a trick question. Uh, I don't think that was a couch. I think you had a bed uh, in a very special room. I mean, you're not wrong. I really, I really undersold it on the lead up to that question. Yeah, no, I want, I want people to know that you had a bed. Um, that was in Los Angeles, uh, and you were DPing a show. We this actually happened twice for extended periods of time, where you were our house guest and honorary family member for a month or more um, at a time, and uh, we're a resident of LA working as a local. And what were you doing during that time for bonus points? I was freelance producing, often in television, uh, trying to be a writer, but in reality, doing a lot more story producing in the non-scripted world, which, you know, is a whole other story, but is kind of like writing um, and kind of not. Uh, in like my main gig during the year was four months of Big Brother, where I was straight up producing. And then I would do lots of other little shows in between where it was more story producing and post-producing and... Um, you know, some writing. I eventually was writing scripts for other shows and actually got, um, you know, credits for those, which isn't always the case in, in reality. I'm going to give you two sound effects. That's two, because you got two points for that answer. That's a first in the history of this podcast. Uh, which brings us to our fifth and final introductory question from Matt Richmond. Uh, which product was our first venture together in mindfulness of a potential unison as creative partners. Hmm. Which product was our first creative endeavor in mindfulness of a union between us? Which product? I'm going to say... ProPlan. Man, I mean, that technically works. Is that right? Let's give him a sound effect anyways. That's a score of six out of five, Matt. That's the best intro anyone has ever done on this show. That's, uh, uh, wow, thanks. Um, what were you looking for on that one? The applesauce job. Applesauce. 
God. But, but Pro Plan works too. Because to be honest, the Poodle Jab was in a way the first, uh, how would you say, uh, unison of vision. Do you like it better just with the one word answers and not the stories? Because that leaves a lot of room for, you know, intrigue for the audience. I have maybe, no maybe idea. that's a good thing. Just, I'm pretty sure this will never happen again. Just applesauce. Applesauce is the, is the correct answer. Okay. Which brings us to Matt Richmond. All right. So my goal, obviously, I know who you are, and I've I've had the pleasure of getting to know you uh, over these years uh, through some pandemic quarantines and through just general business partnershipery uh, and our friendship. Um, but what I want to do is touch point on some of the stories and things that I think are most interesting about you in hopes that other people can discover uh, where you live. Where I live. Okay. Right. Like, uh, yeah. We want to get straight to true crime. Um, we want to open the door for the internet to do whatever it wants to. Great. Great. In this continued game show of the Hey Retriever podcast game show. Now, uh, what I want to do is start in Chicago because you're in Chicago right now. Where do you stay? I, I live in the neighborhood of Lincoln Square. Right. And your house number, please. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. Um, so Chicago, you're back in Chicago. And that was obviously a large part of our conversation and joining up. Um, but what brought you back to Chicago? I want to work in reverse all the way down to Infant Matt. Uh, let's go Chicago backwards. Okay. Well, um, I am in Chicago because this is the city that feels most like home in, in the world to me. Um, I met my wife here. I finished college here. Um, lived some formative years uh, trying things and being, you know, a young, not fully formed adult. Um, it's just, it's just home to me and my wife. Um, previously I was in Los Angeles and I, to be honest, wasn't a hundred percent ready to leave there. Um, but the rest of my family was, uh, and so we came back and I'm so glad we did because, uh, you know, as is often the case, uh, my wife was right. Which is interesting because there was a particular moment that I recall, um, that even made the thought process manifest, which was the Cubs interview. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was up for a, an interview with uh, Cubs Productions, uh, or I, I was flown back here from L.A. for an interview with them. Um, I was up for a position, a producer position with them, um, which, you know, it would be in-house again, which I wasn't crazy about, but they're a really ambitious group, and they do a lot of cool, like, long-form Doc style storytelling and and uh, there was a lot I was excited about. Plus, it was a chance to sort of get moved back to Chicago for a reason and not just like you know because we wanted to live here. Um, and I didn't ultimately get the job, but I think it did. I think you're right. I think it kind of turned all of our our sort of minds toward that possibility. My family's minds. Um, and eventually, you know, that's what it, it became. So going back to Los Angeles, what was it that brought you there? That was, that was me just wanting to grow in a way that I couldn't, um, in my previous situation. I, I, I came out of strictly advertising and I was producing and writing for the screen and, and stuff in an ad agency context, but, 
I knew there was a, a certain level that I wasn't going to achieve in that scenario or in, in that context. And, and I was not going to be happy until I, I saw the other side of it. You know, it's kind of a what's over that fence, what's at the end of the rainbow kind of move. And my wife was up for it. She was, she was game. Um, I had kids, little kids at the time, a seven and a four year old. Um, and we moved into a two bedroom apartment in Studio City. And uh, I was lucky enough to have some friends who were already fairly established out there and got me on uh, producing on shows like Big Brother and, and a nice situation to be able to just step into and not, not common. Um, so I, I was sort of lucky in that sense and, and it, it was a nice opportunity. So we went for it and uh, stayed out there five, six years. That's where you met Tony, right? Tony Denman was my neighbor. Uh, at that first apartment complex, uh, Tony Denman of Fargo fame, Scotty Lundegaard. I like to remind him of that whenever I see him. Uh, which, of course, Tony is a project we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, so we find ourselves in LA. Where we're, I remember I was out there for a project, and you and I met at a like a food stall. Um, you were staying with TA, I think. Even before the family moved out there. Oh yeah, no, I was I, my first summer out there. I was staying with my friend Chris Roach. Um, oh, that's right. And he was uh, co-EP of Big Brother at the time, and and got me my first break out there. Gave me my first gig, um, and I actually lived in his spare room for a while. And and uh, I don't remember the cart. Where did we meet? I was a food place. There were some beers, which you know, there's a common theme I think with Los Angeles. Which is that it's a city of transplants. Some stay, some go. People are there temporarily. People leave, uh, and in a strange way, you going to LA first, staying on Chris's couch, and then moving the family out there, and then the versions of repetition that happen after that with me, others. Uh, it's kind of a fun, a fun angle on the city, on the industry city, uh, that I think people. You know, take for granted. I mean, it's yeah. I think it's pretty. It's a pretty common LA story. You know, especially if you are lucky enough to have somebody out there already. You know, it, when I was nineteen, I went out there and stayed with friends of friends on a couch and thought I was going to sell a screenplay. I had no idea what I was doing, but you know, that's kind of the way you see LA the first time. A lot of times, um, especially as a creative, like. What if? And then you'd go out and you'd crash, and then maybe you stick, or maybe you leave, and then try again later, or or whatever. Maybe you never go back. And that takes us from LA back to Michigan, and you know I'm, I'm working myself back all the way, but ultimately, you know, you're a writer, you're a director, uh, but I think in a lot of ways, one of the things that's unique about you is all the travel. And one of the things you and I had the chance to really dive through, of course, was our first night out of quarantine last May uh, in England. And I had never heard, you know, your stories of, of travel, your stories of travel beyond Michigan and beyond LA. Because all of this is consistent with I I think with what you know is always in your heart, which is to go seek and find and tell stories. Um so Matt Richmond goes to Prague. Yeah, I you know, I it's Going backwards is tough because I, I'm sort of stepping back a little further to give context to everything. But I was 
sort of a chronic dropout in college. I didn't want to be there. I didn't understand why I needed it. I didn't, you know, it, it didn't feel like a challenge. I didn't want to be in school anymore after high school. Um, but I was sort of expected to be there, and I went, and I dropped out, and then I went to another one, and I dropped out. And, um, after a couple of those times, I just sort of camped out, took jobs, and, you know, as a waiter or bartender or whatever I could get. And then I would save up money, and I'd, I'd try to go somewhere. Um, Prague is one of those first big trips that I was able to take. Not the the first, but um, it was, I don't know, mid-late 90s. Uh, it was just recently sort of opened up um, from the Soviet years, and so it was it was still really gray and kind of run down. It was there were parts of town that were sort of getting spruced up. Um, it was incredibly affordable, uh, and being a young twenty something or whatever that that was important. Um, so I lived there for a couple months. I thought I was going to live there for longer than that. Um, I actually I I got a job as a proofreader on the Prague Post, which could have kept me there for a while. And as soon as I got that job, I was like, this isn't right. No, I'm, I'm, I'm going back. I, I didn't feel strongly enough to stay. Um, everybody I knew there, all the expats were really poor and drunk and just kind of, you know, lots of, I don't know, the, the, there was like a badge of honor to have survived having no money and being really uncomfortable and in shitty places for a long time. And I just didn't really need that badge. So um, so I came back. But it was a good, exciting two months. And I don't know, you know, there were ways that I grew then and, and uh, certainly expanded my horizons a little bit. All of this gets me to the question of why documentary? You know, I, I think of you as a documentary filmmaker, uh, as a filmmaker first, but one who specializes and excels at documentaries. Um, what role did all this travel in the last 20, 30 years of your life uh, play in your interests as a documentarian? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know that I actually have traveled that much. It just it just may be the, the trips I've taken have sort of lived or loomed large in, in my story that I tell about myself, maybe. I, I don't know. It's It was important for me to get out of whatever sort of normal, whatever situation I thought of as normal at, at the time, you know, like just sort of testing yourself in new places and among new people and um, learning, you know, having genuine sort of interest in what other people are up to and the way other people live and I've I've always wanted to be a writer. I've always been interested in characters um, and in real people and what makes them tick and and how we're all different and the same. You know, I mean, it's just sort of a writer's impulse, I guess. Um, and that that's evolved into documentary, uh, be, just because documentary is so expansive. You know, multi-dimensional. Um, you can get to know a person in more than just a written way more than just a, a sort of a visual way, like you get to sculpt a, a whole world. Let's talk for a second about the documentaries you've worked on. Uh, let's start with Brow House. Okay. Um, what, just what's it about? What is the movie? Just read the whole thing for me. Read the Brow House? 
Yeah, the transcript. <laughs> you could just start with the whole film. That'd be wonderful. Now, so yeah. tell me a little bit about Bra House. You know, how does that play into uh, your your first debut as as a, uh, a documentary filmmaker in the public sense uh, during COVID? Well, okay, so here's here's some evidence that there's no way you and I didn't start working together before 2010. Because in 2012, you and I were close enough that you were like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. I'll help you out. Um, because I came to you and I said, listen, I, I used to work in this German restaurant in Chicago. There's a story there. I don't know what it is yet. Um, it, there's a million stories there. I, I attended bar during the lunch shift. All the old timers came through. You know, the guys who ran it were um, characters. Uh, it, 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 the place was full of stories. And, I, and you can just feel it when you're sitting there. This past tense, unfortunately, but um, I came to you with no plan and said, "Listen, there's a story to tell. Let's go try and tell it." And we spent an entire day, maybe two, shooting sort of on-the-fly interviews and a little bit of uh, verite and a little bit of just kind of texture stuff on a red, and tried to cut something out of that eventually. We kind of got a, a, a version of something that was like a maybe a trailer, maybe a short. Didn't really add up to much because I was a young uh, filmmaker at that point and didn't quite know how to put it all together. But five years later, you know, the, the project had been put aside and somebody sent me a link to the Chicago Tribune wherein Harry Kempf, the owner of the, the Brauhaus, was quoted as saying, uh, we'll close when I say we're closed, and we're not closed, you know, something like that. He, he, it had been reported that they were closing, selling the place, and reading Harry's note or, or quote, I knew, like, there's more going on here. Like, something's weird, because why would that rumor even start? Um, that's when you and I started a Kickstarter, uh, raised some funds, Got put together a crew, got ourselves back to Chicago, and shot for a week in and around the Brow House. Did some in-depth interviewing, and sort of wove a story out of that about a family kind of coming to grips with the end of an era, uh, the younger generation and their expectations versus the older generation and their expectations, and ultimately the closing of a fifty-two-year-old institution that didn't have to close and nobody wanted to close except for the owners. At some point in between us filming the second session and being in post, you started work on what became your second film, which is Never Had a Bad Day. Yeah, and that was that that was generated um, not so much by me originally, but but by good friends and colleagues. Um, that I've worked with a long time in the world of Caterpillar in advertising. We've done a lot of different stuff together and we're sort of a regular team. And so my old creative partner, Jake, and uh, our regular collaborator on the cat side, Sarah, who, who you would call a client probably, but we don't quite work that way because we're so collaborative. Anyway, uh, Jake and Sarah called me while I was in LA and, and said, hey, we want to think really big. We want to try something um, 
we want to try something that doesn't that isn't advertising that doesn't feel like advertising. We just want to tell like the best possible story and and pull as much uh, of the advertising speak out of it as we can as go as indirect as possible at a customer story. Um, and she had some ideas about who that customer might be, and eventually we we met Bernie, um, this guy Bernie Carl, who uh, ha- runs a resort in Alaska, but is also like this mad scientist engineer who's developing and and leading and inventing. And um, we went up and met him, uh, kind of diagnosed the situation, and I was like, yeah, I mean, there's a lot here. This is this could be a feature. And over time, that's what it turned out to be. I, the summer of 18, I was up there three or four times, um, and we really kind of chronicled a moment in his life trying to get this one exhibit up and built that probably shouldn't have been done. It's it's like, it's sort of impossible the way he did it, but he did it. And in the meantime, kind of told the story of his life and, and how he found the sort of skills and motivation that make him who he is. I think that you're the kind of guy who opens the jar of pickles and then sniffs the jar of pickles and wonders what's in there. Um, meaning I don't take for granted that those are pickles just because the jar says pickles? That's exactly what I meant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll take that. I'll take that as a compliment. And I think that's something that that is consistent in all the work you do. You know, for those who don't know Matt, uh, I feel like you are always looking for and kind of dissecting the thing that turns your head. You know, if there's the predictable story, you know, your eyes are always kind of glancing towards the things that no one's paying attention to, or you know, or or the situations that maybe people overlook. Um, which brings us to George, the third piece. Yeah, and I mean the thing that might link all these things is that as a young writer is some you know somebody just reading and fantasizing you know like daydreaming about what kind of writer I wanted to be or what kind of stories I wanted to tell I always I was always drawn to um columnists like Mike Royko or Ernie Pyle guys who were out just in their environment in their milieu of finding the people that are living their lives and telling the stories that, you know, that are just easily overlooked, that maybe are, are so common that they seem, I, you know, I'm not sure how to, how to put it, but those, those guys just lived ordinary lives among quote unquote ordinary people and made them feel real and important. And, uh, uh, you know, the time spent in their column felt like time in those people's lives. And that's the kind of writer I always wanted to be. Um, and I, I think that's the kind of filmmaker I want to be as well. It's just the kind of storyteller, whatever. George Manius is a, is a shoe shiner in Peoria, Illinois, uh, who is 91 years old now and has been shining shoes without a break other than the occasional trip to Greece, his, his hometown in Greece, for 76 years. He started at age 14. And he's still going. He goes into the office five days a week, the shop, and uh, he's got his regular clientele, and and uh, he keeps things running. And you know, he could have retired a long time ago, and he doesn't. Um, he still doesn't. And uh, that's really intriguing to me. Like, 
you know, that's the work ethic is admirable and also a mystery. Like what what makes him tick? Uh, and so George's Shoeshine is the name of the film. It's a half hour short and uh, just kind of digs into who George is and and what's behind that work ethic. And um, you know, it turns out he's a is a really just sort of emotional and and dedicated man who uh, kind of expresses that with with his care for his shop and his shoes. Um, that's it's one expression of who he is. I think one of the things that I like and respect a lot about your work is that a they are they are character studies. You're, you're always looking at character first, right? It's it's less about the world around them, and it's more about how they process and move through their worlds. Um, but also, I think that. There's a lot of curiosity built around the world that you know and the world uh, through which you moved. And the stories that you tell are oftentimes like little bookmarks that you put into your brain at some point throughout time and said, I'm going to come back to this. I'm going to come back to this. And that's a lot of our conversations, you know, between you and I, what's next, what's next. We have these inventories of just ideas in our mind, Um, things that have been chaptered and logged and and, and we return to, and I, I think that you know, you and I have joked uh, that a lot of your films are about old men, and I think that there's something truthful about the elderly, in that we get to kind of see their entire life laid out before them. What are your thoughts on that? Just on 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 what is it that brings you and drives you and interests you in these stories as they all relate? Yeah, in this well, chapter of your filmmaking process, I mean. There's just something fascinating about things that last. You know, I, I like old things. I like old crafts. I like old, you know, it's evocative to think of another time. And and men or, or people who last do that in their way. You know, they represent the time that they were in their prime, but they're walking in our time. It's just fascinating to me to think of it. Um, I mean, that's all of art is that, right? Like every book you read is sort of a, a, a moment of time frozen that, that some author put into paper. And then you, you read it at a point in your life that's significant. And maybe you read it differently if you're 20 or if you're 40. We're all constantly sort of interacting with all these artifacts um, from other lives. And I guess... I don't know, you know, when you when you meet somebody who, especially like these old guys that I've done the last three projects on, they're older guys and they're also like, I don't give a shit what anybody thinks about me, guys. So you you get this unfiltered essence of them, whether you like it or not. And that is compelling to me. Uh, it's not always pretty. It's not always like, you know... Right, <laughs> uh, but it's compelling, and you know, there's a lot, there's a lot there to work with. There's a lot to explore. Um, so I think that's, I think that's part of it, and you know, just having a general respect for our elders and and previous times and stuff. I, I don't know. It all kind of adds up to that level of curiosity. That doesn't mean I only want to tell stories about um, older people, but. Uh, that is what has kind of captured me in my passion projects. So if you're the head of marketing at the AARP, 
just so you know, he might say no to your project. Uh, that being said, <laughs> I do think this segues into narrative, right? Which I think, you know, we get so busy as as creators of things that we're focusing on commercial and corporate and we're doing documentary work. But one of the things that that, you know, I got to share with you early on was you working through a true poet, which is a project that I think a lot of people who are listening to this might not know about. Um, I think it's a fascinating story. I think it's evolved in some very intriguing ways throughout the last 10 years. And I think it's something that's very special because it it, it really does form uh, a, a really integrated and unified basis in terms of the kinds of things you're talking about executing and creating. Um, so let's talk a little bit about A True Poet. Okay, well, um, it's... Uh... Boy, there's where do you start? It it is. It, it, it's been ten years um, that I've been working on it, so that's pretty terrifying. Um, it, back in the '80s or '90s, there was a, a set of notebooks that was found in an attic somewhere in Hiroshima, um, and it was full of poetry, among other things. It, it also had grocery lists and. You know, just little doodles and ideas and coffee stains and all sorts of things in it. Um, but the poetry in it was really moving and really well-crafted and described uh, the life of a, a man who had lost his wife and a daughter in the bombing of Hiroshima. And by the early 90s, um, it had sort of made its way into the sort of loftier realms of um, avant-garde poetry or maybe not even avant-garde, just kind of the the coolest poetry journals of the time were stumbling all over themselves to to print some of Yasusada's work. Um, so Araki Yasusada started appearing in, or, or the work started appearing in all these um, journals, and everybody was like, wow, dude, this is so authentic and so, you know, um, important, until enough of it started to appear that people kind of started dissecting it and realized that this was not, in fact, real. It, it was sort of a, an elaborately constructed ruse. Um, some people called it a hoax. Uh, the Village Voice called it a criminal act. People were up in arms, and a lot of people, I think, just felt stupid for having kind of fallen for it. So the story that that I'm telling, called A True Poet, is built around that drama, that that hoax that happened in the 90s. Um, I just through my uh, professional career met um, somebody who had been involved in in the hoax in, in one way or another and has kind of gotten me the rights I needed to use some of the poetry and, and that sort of thing. And, and uh, yeah, it's been a, a marathon, man. It's been, you know, 10 years, like trying to figure out how to make this thing. And it, it had a ton of momentum at, at times. It, it semi-finaled in the Nickel Fellowship, which is not a small thing, and got a lot of calls and a lot of reads. And, and uh, it's been close, but it has not gotten over the finish line. So currently working on a new version of the script, uh, V157 or something. I think it's fun, though, because as it's evolved, the characters have taken different form. There's the adjunct piece, which is the documentary about the, the story itself. And then there's the idea, too, of the podcast, um, walking through the process. And, and I, you know, it's, it's a real thing. 
it's it's rooted in you know the interests of a documentary filmmaker, but expressed through a very you know equally stylistic and poetic narrative adventure, uh, which I think is neat to see. You know your style kind of come through, uh, and then of course how that manifests when it's produced and when it's created uh, at the time precisely when it ought to be is going to be quite interesting. Um, and that really gets us to the next question, which is, so where are you from? What What is your background? <laughs> are we back, are we Are we all the way to infancy? I mean, yeah. Let's tell me, who's baby Matt Richmond? <laughs> baby Matt. So Matt Richmond, infant, go. Uh, I was born in Shelby County, Indiana. Um, that's... Uh, well, I was born in uh, Shelbyville, which is the county seat of Shelby County, Indiana. Uh, it's a small town just southeast of Indianapolis. My parents were 18 years old each when they had me, and and uh, we're just kind of a small town family in the 70s uh, doing their thing. I, I was there until I was 10. I have a sister. Her name is Elizabeth. She was you know, three years younger than me. And then we moved to Peoria, Illinois uh, because my mom got hired or or the business she was working for moved and, and we went with them. Something fascinating about your mother that I didn't know until recently is that she repairs jewelry and watches, right? Watches, yeah. Watches, which is no easy craft. Well, yeah, her eyes are shot. It's a lot of uh, looking at tiny things. I think it's all fascinating because, you know, in reverse, <laughs> in the order that we've asked, you know, this kid from Shelbyville, right, has this experience and exposure traveling not only the U.S., um, not only for personal but for business uh, and for, for creative output. Uh, there's a real kind of... I don't know, I hate using the term Midwestern vibe, but a Midwestern sentiment to a lot of what interests you and the things that you look at as you travel, whether it's West Coast, East Coast, England, Europe, you know, the way that you look at the world is influenced by the people who you looked at and asked questions about throughout your childhood and your teens and your your collegiate dropout years. And I always think it's interesting. I think... uh, you know, not that where you're from is something that you're gonna slap on a green sign and put next to a diner, but it's it's I think part of the fabric of who you are and informs the kinds of questions you ask. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, you know, I'm probably most fascinated by people who aren't me or don't think like I do. You know, like um, I'm a gardener, and and living in LA was. A blast because I could grow anything out there. It was like a totally separate world where tomatoes grew in the spring, and you know, winter was the time for lettuce. Like you know, just everything was upside down, and that that's that's fascinating. And it, people are like that too. You know, you just kind of um, get to know people either slowly or or uh, quickly in an interview, however it has to happen, and kind of just make comparisons and. Think I, I don't know. It's just kind of fascinating. I think that that's an entirely separate conversation. Is uh, Matt's obsession with gardening, with xeroscaping, with landscape? It's a regular runner in our conversations. Um, 
I like to constantly ask Matt what he's working on now. Uh, and so I'll do that. Matt, what are you working on now? Well, I, I have a new uh, concrete planter, kind of a visual piece uh, for the front yard that's uh, really added a lot, you know, in terms of height and and texture. Uh, so I'm, I'm figuring out what's going to go in that planter and what's, what I'm going to plant around it. I think that's fascinating. And because the theme of this podcast is none of you fucking asked for this, it's probably the most relevant piece of data to everybody's daily life. Uh, and also to mine personally, because now I am a gardener also. We are a, we are a gardening power couple. Uh, yeah, I like to like to think that I had a little bit of influence on that. You had a lot of influence on on me. I mean, I can talk about hymenoptera and uh, parasitic wasps, but that's really all I can contribute to the story. Um, which, okay, so this is great. I mean, we we get into a big look, a comprehensive look at who you are, uh, a slice of you, and as a filmmaker and as as a worker, as a as a professional creative. Um, both on projects you have completed and then projects that we're working towards. And of course, there's all kinds of shows and other documentaries that are in the hopper. But what's next? What's on the horizon for you? I don't know, man. You know, like you and I do a lot of talking about that sort of thing and, and we have ideas and we plan. But ultimately, I, I, I like to take things as they come and and opportunities sort of present themselves. You, you you can't force these things. So there's certainly ideas about, you know, what what would we do if we had, you know, the funding to to make uh, any film we wanted or or how would we pursue work if we had access to anybody we wanted? Uh, it, you know, that's not how it is. So I, I try to kind of be open and, and uh, not passive, but but just sort of, Ready. Is that a cop-out answer? No, I think that's a very, very good answer. Because the truth is, like, documentary isn't something that you just elect to do and suddenly you're funded and suddenly everything's in place for you. It's consumptive. It, it takes energy and time and thought and you destroy and you create and you destroy the thing you created. But it's really not even about you. You know, it's about persistence and about consistently showing up and capturing and forming whether it's you know uh, recreation or it's it's just pure verite, I think that your answer makes a lot of sense because that I mean, that unifies our approach. Yeah, I, my goal is to put us in a position to have more opportunities, and and that's just by doing good work and and uh, talking about it when we have to. Which gets us back to hey retriever. The podcast. So, what is our goal with this podcast? Our goal, you know, on paper, is to present ourselves in a way that isn't stilted by marketing speak or you know this this uh, false kind of perception of who we are vis a vis a Instagram page or whatever you know like. Try try to be as authentic as we can in real conversation, uh, without trying to sculpt a public personality that that may or may not be real. Put a sound effect right there. That is that, a, is that a win? That's a win. That's a great answer. And I don't know. I think this is a fun exploration 
you know, I think that these conversations with you and I are tough to your point because we we talk every single day. Uh, my my wife oftentimes walks past the garage where I'm currently sitting, and we'll see that I'm in conversation with you and just smile and shake her head. Uh, I am told that you and I talk more than she and I do. Yeah, that's not even an exaggeration. I'm sure. No, it's very true. <laughs> Same, <laughs> but man. it's fun. You know, it's I enjoy fun it. to create to create with people who inspire you and keep you inspired to create and do things. And so, you know, the hope with this is obviously that moving forward, we we speak to the directors that we represent and ourselves. Uh, but bigger picture, we we want to look at all these other relationships. You know, these these different pieces of our puzzle of what makes retriever retriever that we really don't ever have a forum to speak about, um, short of just shoveling work into people's faces. And at a certain point, I'm tired of that. I don't want to watch 10 more videos all the time. Sometimes I want to just learn something I wasn't thinking about, or I want to hear a story. Uh, And so I I charge you, I ask you uh, to share with me, if you would, one of your favorite stories from, from the pandemic. Let's find a positive in the face of the negative. Uh, looking back at the last two and a half years, uh, what's something that stands out to you as a, as a moment that you smile on? Well, that's a weird way to, I mean, not weird, but it, it's it, it's it's hard to, to speak about the good without acknowledging the bad. Uh, you know, I, I think everybody would say it's it's been an opportunity to think about things in a new way and, and uh, assess and, and all that. Maybe try something new. You know, I started baking bread. I'm not the only one who started baking bread, but uh, it has become, you know, something of a hobby um, that's stuck with me. So that's been cool. Um, a big moment? I don't know, man. Like, those moments are big because they're they're a relief from all the stress and all the, you know, the low-key panic that's going through everybody's souls all the time. So what you know, the things that feel big, I, I don't I don't know. Something just doesn't even feel like like it counts, you know, like I should celebrate anything from that time. I've done, you know, I've done things I've enjoyed. You know, there's been like uh, th- that first winter after, you know, it sort of hit in March and then summer happened and there was like the dip and everybody thought, okay, well, maybe it's okay. And then it came back really strong. And there was that that winter of um, 20, 21, where we spent all our time outside, even in the winter, you know, we were kind of making fires outside and, you know, making a pot of sauerkraut and standing in the backyard, talking to people and drinking beer and uh, doing things in a way that we just probably wouldn't have if we hadn't needed to but it was a really important to do it like it like we all needed it and two the way we did it felt like it, well you know we're doing the best we can here you know like uh, we're we're trying um so i remember that pretty distinctly because it it i don't know we just all were sort of transformed into like scandinavians jars of pickles yeah just more jars of pickles. Yep. Well, that concludes my my questions that I have for you. I I would add one thing, and that is, hey, retriever. In my mind, isn't really about retriever. We're retriever, and obviously, because we're the owners, we're we're sort of like 
helping to define what retriever is with this. But down the line, I don't know. I kind of hope this is its own thing. And, and we're just talking to people that we find interesting and worthwhile, you know, whose stories we want to tell. I don't mean worthwhile. Everybody's worthwhile. But you know what I mean? Like, we want to expand beyond the limits of business. There's business tied to everything we're talking about so far. And, and when we talk to our roster, when we talk to our, you know, colleagues in, in other fields or whatever, we're going to be talking to people and, and learning about them. But there's a business kind of tint to it all. And I hope someday that's that's not really what we're doing. You know, I, I hope someday this is about the podcast and the people um, first. And then Retriever just happens to be how it started. There's the trailer. Yeah. So this is the part where the music comes on and just abruptly cuts me off right about here. And now no one's listening because I've been cut off and there's some great outro music. Or maybe my voice is still happening over the music and maybe that's just part of it. Keep it going. I don't really have anything else to say. Uh, Episode one, Matt Richmond. Next episode. John Michael Ryan. And it'll be a shit show. Tune in every week. Every other week. (laughs) Oh yeah, format. So the podcast is meant to be bi-weekly because we all have shit to do. And that seems good for us. Uh, We're going to launch every Tuesday at 5 in the morning. Dane's going to wake up at 2.30 to manually upload by dial-up each episode. Uh, And it'll be available in all the places where you download your podcasts, including your friend's house, probably. We'll see you there. We'll see you there. Bye. We'll see. We'll see you there. <laughs> I don't know. And outro. Oh, am I supposed to do like, uh, "Hey Retriever" is brought to you by Retriever. Uh, thanks to Dane Dickman from Dane Dickman Audio Sound and Development. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait till I have a sponsor. That's gonna be awesome. Hey Retriever is sponsored Matt's by Matt's Alpha Brain. By Matt's Matt's by Alpha Brain. Uh, be just like Alex Jones. Alpha Brain. Alpha Male. Sorry, his product is called Alpha Male. I want to see if Alex Jones has any money left over. <laughs> yeah, I think I think they cleaned him out. He yeah. doesn't. He's gone. He's done. All right. Mm-hmm.